I'm going to basically focus uh, in my time on the political context here in Australia. Uh, hopefully Phil can, can fill in the rest. Um, <coughs> there is good and bad news, um, and I'll start with the bad news. The, the Labor government has put its name to, has signed off on uh, decades-long commitment to remain welded strategically to the, uh, to the United States, to offer more of Australian territory to the US military, to expend vast public resources on uh, submarines <coughs> designed to contribute uh, to that war machine, and essentially signal that Australia's strategic posture for decades to come will be defined by planning for war uh, with China. Obviously, the submarines are the headline item, um, but we, we needn't exclusively focus on them. I, I really see AUKUS as a kind of calling card or a foot in the door for Australia to uh, engage in an ongoing lobbying effort to retain um, an American military presence in the region, which is still an essential part of the, the Canberra consensus. Um, so one notable step in that direction is going to be the, um, the arrival of British and American nuclear-powered submarines in Western Australia. Um, <coughs> quite soon. Um, the, the first Labor budget will be handed down, um, again, I think quite soon in May. Um, a lot of people expecting a uh, significant increase in defence spending. They've already signed a deal for a billion dollars worth of um, cruise missiles um, bought from the, um, the US. And then there's all the other stuff that's going on uh, at the same time. Australia, for example, stepping up its efforts to essentially do what Australia often accuses China uh, of doing, that is seeking an exclusive sphere of influence uh, in, its, in its region. Um, um, Miles, the Defence Minister Richard Miles has signalled his intention to seek deeper integration um, between the Australian and Pacific uh, police uh, and militaries. Um, <coughs> It's been a series of bilateral security treaties, first with um, Vanuatu uh, last year, which is actually quite historically significant, given Vanuatu's role in the, um, the non-aligned movement. A founding member of the, the non-aligned movement has generally resisted these sorts of um, agreements. Australia feels that it's succeeded finally in pulling Vanuatu out of that, uh, out of that position. Um, <clears throat> A deal with um, a new deal with Kiribati, um, currently finalising negotiations with um, uh, PNG, um, aiming at joint security operations, uh, interoperability, uh, and, and so on. Essentially, what you're seeing playing out there is an arms race between Australia and China to beef up um, the the forces of repression uh, in these countries. So, you might recall the um, the donation of automatic rifles that we delivered um, to uh, Solomon Islands um, to help repress the protests that um, occurred there against the Sogawara government um, not that long ago. Um, <clears throat> now, there may be some short-term advantage for local elites uh, in this region in, in playing off these, these two uh, competitors, but ultimately, small countries that get caught up in big rivalries don't tend to, um, don't tend to fare very well uh, in the end. There's, a, there's an academic, um, um, or more of a more of a spook, really, um, at ANU. Rory Medcalf, who wrote a book about the, um, uh, the, the, the uh, Indo-Pacific uh, geopolitics, and he really he embraced in this book the, the metaphor of the great game, which, of course, comes from the, um, the Russo-British rivalry uh, across Afghanistan. And you only need to think about how that first great game worked out for Afghanistan um, to see what might be in store for the, um, uh, the Pacific um, in this scenario. And, of course, we should be conscious as well of the way in which the new war footing is um, filtering through to other sections of Australian society. And I think 
One obviously, one obvious example that will be of concern to uh, quite a few people in this room um, is what's going on with uh, universities. So universities, uh, Australia um, and the, uh, the, G, the group of eight, they've really jumped at the opportunity to, uh, to secure a, a role in, um, uh, in rolling out AUKUS. Um, universities Australia announced that, <clears throat> quote, universities are a crucial part partner of government in Australia's defence transformation. Uh, they put in a submission to the Defence Strategic Review, which again is um, soon to be released. It's quite a shocking document. Um, <laughs> in which they've clearly entirely bought into the defence worldview of, of looming threats. Um, they announced that you know, not just the hard sciences, but um, cultural studies, um, language, can all be contrib contributions to um, Australian security, um, proposing there a new, what they call a coordination mechanism between universities and defence to, uh, to further remove any barriers to their, their mutual integration. Okay, so that's, um, that's all bad news. Um, certainly, certainly for anyone worried by the risk of war or what militarism and nationalism can do to um, our society. Um, the good news I want to point out is that, that public support for AUKUS is relatively soft. Um, in a poll that was conducted uh, in March, um, and this was after the, the multi-day red alert scaremongering that we saw in the, the Sydney Morning Herald, this was after the... Um, uh, the, the, the flag-draped um, press event in San Diego that um, announced some of the details of the, the AUKUS package after all that fanfare. Um, this essential poll showed that only 40% um, of the public believe that AUKUS will make Australia more secure, and that's trending down. 21% believe it will make Australia less secure, trending up. 20% um, see China as a threat to be confronted, um, trending down. And 67% see China as a complex relationship to be managed, um, which is trending up. Obviously, one poll isn't worth much, um, but you can see that this gives us something to, uh, to work with. Um, and one cause of this obvious lack of enthusiasm for AUKUS is the uh, very public open split um, in Australia's political and diplomatic uh, elite on this, uh, on this question. So um, say what you like about Paul Keating. I, don't imagine that he'd have too many fans um, here in this room. But as a public intervention that provided people with the, the basics of a case um, against AUKUS, um, I think we have to say his address to the, the National Press Club uh, was pretty, uh, pretty effective. Um, and in that address, he laid down a very simple challenge to the, the pundits that support AUKUS, um, which was to substantiate this idea that China uh, presents a threat to Australia that must be met militarily, not just militarily, but by, by opening um, the, the nuclear Pandora's box. And it was instructive to watch in the wake of that um, event the, the supposed defence experts floundering um, in, in response. You know, you saw op-eds claiming that Keating was stuck in the past, that he didn't appreciate that China was attacking Australia um, with um, cyber attacks. Okay, so tell me, what, new, what use are nuclear submarines against, uh, against hacking? Um, people said that, you know, can he see that democracy is in decline in the Pacific? Again, as if nuclear submarines are um, helpful in that respect. And as if this is all China's fault, as if Australia um, hasn't connived in backward steps on democracy and civil liberties in the Pacific when it, when it suits its uh, interests. Um, and then the defence minister, and I said this at Palm Sunday on the weekend, he went on TV and claimed that 
all of Australia, the South China Sea needed to be um, um, needed to be policed because all of Australia's trade with Japan and South Korea, second and third um, partners, um, trading partners for Australia, went, went through the South China Sea, which was just completely untrue. Um, almost all of that trade um, goes goes around it. You know, he had days to prepare for that interview, and that was the best. That was the best he could come up with um, in, in that interview. Just just making stuff up. Um, so the justifications for AUKUS are just really not that convincing, and I think I think more and more of the public um, are starting to to see through them, and I think finding the alternative case um, more convincing that this is actually part of a um, an aggressive forward defence strategy to participate in, in hemming China in and creating insecurity uh, on China's doorstep. I think we can also be conscious of the contradictions um, that exist in Labor's position. You know, Labor in advance of the election was really assiduous in not mounting a substantial critique of the Liberal Party's policy on China, essentially restricting its criticisms to, to questions of tone. Um, nonetheless, the victory did lead to expectations of, of certain um, change. And you can see the way that Labor's quite chuffed now to be seen to be, you know, enjoying the electoral boost of a backlash against the Liberals, um, against the, the perceived um, sinophobia of the Liberals. And in certain small respects, Labor has stepped back from the provocative style of the, um, the Morrison period. We've seen the first um, major Chinese investment in Australian mining approved. Um, coal exports to China seem to be uh, resuming. Uh, apparently a meeting of defence officials, the first for quite some time has been held. Um, and you can see in the media there's this degree of enthusiasm, expectation even, um, that diplomatic contacts will continue to um, revive, that Albanese might even hold a, a meeting with um, Xi Jinping. So Labour's term for this is, is stabilisation. I think we need to be careful in, in interpreting that. I don't think we're seeing Labor move back to a, a more traditional hedging, balancing position between um, China and um, the US. Um, I think, in fact, Labor's in a position now where it sees in Biden a more reliable steward of um, American empire than someone like Trump. Um, and so is, is possibly tempted by the idea that Australia can step back and not constantly be putting itself on the front line uh, in pissing off, um, pissing off China. Um, but essentially, Labor would have us believe then that it's possible to commit to something like AUKUS with all of its implications you know, in a way that avoids stirring up anti-Chinese racism, that avoids giving offence to, to Beijing. Um, and I just don't think that's going to be possible for them. Um, you, you can't bring the public along with you uh, on a campaign uh, against China without the sort of scaremongering um, that we saw in the, you know, the Liberal Party uh, engage in. Um, and we, we are seeing signs of that as well as part of the, the package of, of Labor policies. The, the, the ban on TikTok, the removal of Chinese-made security cameras from Parliament House. You know. um, so, um, and of course, behind all this is the deeper uncertainty that, that, that shrouds the whole question. Um, Australia is clearly looking for America to do the heavy lifting uh, in, in containing um, China. Um, but of course, there are deep anxieties that you know, America doesn't really have a strategy um, to do that. To the extent that America is articulating a strategy to do that, it, it, it's one that sort of implies the converse, that they would actually like to see 
countries like Australia do more of the heavy lifting uh, to contain China, right? Um, so um, this is something that's arguably inherent in this, this new buzzword in Washington, uh, integrated deterrence. Um, the um, um, <coughs> current American doctrine. Okay, um, so I'll just end with a couple of minutes uh, on the, the state of the, the anti-war movement. Um, <clears throat> so we have the beginnings of a campaign against AUKUS uh, in Australia. Um, some grounds for optimism and um, I do want to credit um, Solidarity for the work that they've been doing to get this up and uh, running. Um, <clears throat> the politics surrounding this issue are quite diverse. There are folks that we would say, you know, are genuinely right-wing um, forces um, uh, coming from an Australian nationalist perspective, um, circling around this, this issue. Um, but this is a, sort of a bigger centre um, that's dominated by versions of the, <clears throat> the dovish elite critique of AUKUS, people who are opposed to a doctrine of, of forward defence, Australia projecting um, um, military capacities deep into Asia, opposed to this integration with the US, but insisting that Australia needs an alternative uh, defence policy. And some of those conceptions can be quite hawkish in their own way. Um, you look at the tradition of thinking around, you know, the defence of Australia doctrine, um, people inclined in that direction are often, in fact, more open to the idea that Australia needs to acquire nuclear weapons in order to go it alone independently um, without the US. Um, for example, you know, you see a lot of this politically or disorienting emphasis on uh, national, so national sovereignty um, and the, the compromise um, of that. And here I think there's, there's room for a degree of nuance. I, you know, I don't think it's insignificant that Australia's ability to take an independent stance on, on foreign policy issues will be further constrained um, by AUKUS. But the position, the, the, the decision to pursue AUKUS is something that was, you know, decision that was made by Australians uh, here in, in Australia and could be, could be undone by Australians. I think American pressure plays a role at certain points, um, <clears throat> but at its core, we don't need the concept of American pressure to explain why Australia is behaving um, the way that it is. This is consistent with a, you know, a historically observable desire to, uh, to dominate Australia's immediate region, but back that up by recruiting the presence of an outside uh, empire um, into the, the region. And a lot of this sort of, <clears throat> you know, the, 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 the centre of gravity um, within current anti-war campaigning is informed by a, you know, a, a sort of a realist, realpolitik um, view of international relations, which basically says that the, the alternative to confronting China is placating China. You know, I, I, I respect the work that people in organisations like IPAN do, I, I, I really do, but, but, you know, on occasions their meetings can feel a little bit like an Australia-China friendship um, association, you know, people confidently getting up and declaring that, you know, Taiwan belongs to China and the Australian policy is that Taiwan belongs to China, um, this kind of thing. And, you know, well, for one, that's not Australia's um, policy, but more importantly, it needn't be our policy either. Um, you know, we support the principle of self-determination. Uh, with the proviso, of course, you know, we, we need not support con concrete actions that are very likely to trigger an inter-imperial inter war, such as a, um, you know, a unilateral Taiwanese declaration of independence. Um, you know, people who think you need to refute the claim that there's serious repression uh, taking place in, in Xinjiang. We don't need to refute that. There is 
serious repression taking place uh, in Xinjiang. Um, great powers commit great crimes, uh, and sadly, China is no uh, exception. Um, I need to wrap up. So, um, you know, our point has to be that there's just nothing to be gained for people in China, Taiwan, or on the human rights front by putting Australia onto this, uh, this war footing. Um, and anyone using those critiques of China to promote militarism uh, and nationalism, you know, should be, uh, should be called out and, and shamed for, for doing so. Um, I think there is still, though, a lot of potential to, to um, you know, build a pole within the anti-war movement that doesn't shy away from a more ambitious systemic critique uh, of the drives of, um, drivers of geopolitical tensions. Without any hyperbole, I can say that the stakes here are incredibly high. Um, even if we don't end up in a nuclear Armageddon, um, which triggers disastrous economic collapse um, and tips, off, tips us off a climate cliff, um, I still I think that the world today cannot afford um, you know, multiple decades long Cold War confrontation um, in Asia, which you know, will all but ensure that we fail to prioritise a response to, to climate change, um, you know, not to mention all the social costs that that will um, entail as well. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, um, David. We're just going to hear from Phil now. Okay. Okay, thanks. Um, yeah, I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land we're meeting on, the Gadigal and Dural people. Acknowledge Auntie Rhonda and thank her for her welcome to country. Um, and I'd like to also acknowledge David and the work he's done. Uh, everyone should read his book, The China Panic. If you haven't read it, you should go out and read it. Um, steal a copy, however. Um, Libgan has copies. Yeah, that's great. Um, and, and also the work he's done in taking up the militarism, the incredible militarism and racism we've had from mainstream politicians and the mainstream media. It's been absolutely uh, vital in resisting this. Okay, so I want to I start by giving, I think, a broad context. Why are we in this position? We're in this position because the United States and its allies, including Australia, have decided, explicitly decided, that they are going to block the further economic and military expansion of China. They're going to basically say to the Chinese, no further, you're not going to get any stronger, any richer or any more powerful. And they're putting extreme military and economic pressure on the regime, which we don't necessarily see. The South China Sea is flooded with American military uh, and naval armadas. The Air Force are, are running uh, uh, surveillance operations and other operations right along the Chinese border in the South China Sea and, to a lesser extent, the East China Sea constantly patrolling, constantly risking a confrontation with the Chinese government. Senior US naval and military officers have told their staff to be ready for war at any time, including literally the statement, we have to be ready for war tonight. Right? That's, that's, that's what we're, we're being told. Now, I just want to stop here to say, I've heard a lot of um, Australians talk about, oh, oh, yeah, we could be in a war with China. I just don't think people realise what a war today would be like. I mean, it's, it's like, and I, I don't mean a nuclear war. A nuclear war, of course, we know what that would be like. I, I, maybe we do. A war with China could involve the destruction of much of the satellites orbiting the Earth because they're the things that are used to send you know, missiles to where they're supposed to go. So you wake up in the morning, your mobile phone doesn't work, right? 
You wake up, you know, all kinds of communications are destroyed. The economy in rich Western countries is, is just thrown into complete chaos. And that's without the sinking of, um, you know, commercial shipping from China to anywhere and all that that would involve. And just in case anyone, and there's some, there are ridiculous people, good ridiculous people, who think that Australia should be self-reliant. Well, if you think Australia should be self-reliant, go to Bunnings, go to Kmart, you know, go to any, any major store in Australia, walk along and pull everything that has not just made in China on it, but that contains something made in China, and see what you're left with. See what the Australian economy would have to produce in order to survive, you know, to be self-reliant, survive a war, uh, whatever. I mean, it would be an un imaginable catastrophe, the kind of catastrophe people in Africa actually live with. Um, the US has legislated to sanction any corporation which sells advanced microchips to China or which allows China or facilitates China producing them. Okay? And that includes, you know, it's, it's warned the Dutch uh, company that produces, the only company that produces the machinery to make advanced microchips, they can't sell that machinery to China. They can only sell it to the countries the US allows that Dutch company to sell it to. Um, the US, the champion of globalisation, has been spending $50 billion to get uh, microchip corporations to establish plants in America. America that says, oh, we, we care about Taiwan's self-determination, has basically pressured Taiwan's very successful microchip company, TSMC, to set up an operation in America. Right? What that's going to do for jobs and the economy in Taiwan, you can work out. At the same time, of course, they're complaining about Chinese subsidies to business. So what we have here is a classic, a classic, uh, a classic demonstration of imperial rivalry of the kind that Lenin and Bukharin and the Bolsheviks theorised amidst the slaughter of the First World War. You know, we had people on the left tell us um, a few years ago that, not so long ago, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, imperialism was an outdated concept. It is back with a vengeance. And the imperial rivalry we are seeing is driven by the imperatives to control the uh, production of surplus value, to control surplus value that's produced in the economy, to control how goods are produced, where they're sold, markets, uh, and to control territory. And that kind of imperial rivalry, the kind we're seeing today, leads to war. And I, I want to be absolutely clear what I think. I think there is every likelihood we will see war, some kind of war, some kind of military conflict with China in the not so too distant future. And, and it is, as David said, the, the challenge facing us is incredibly ex is extreme. Okay, um, so now I want to just say something here about the Taiwan issue because um, there is every expectation that some incident will lead to a Chinese invasion of Taiwan uh, and then an American response. In my opinion, the opinion of solidarity, a war over Chinese control of Taiwan is actually a war for who controls that part of Northeast Asia and ultimately the world. It, is, it would be a war between imperial rivals. Every bit as much as brutal and as pointless and as destructive to the ordinary people of the world as the First and Second World Wars. And we can take no side in that war. Certainly, we have to oppose any American intervention to, quote unquote, defend uh, Taiwan. Uh, and I, I know you hear the argument that what about Taiwanese self-determination? Actually, with, in the absence of an imperial war, we would support Taiwanese self-determination. 
But if Taiwanese self-determination depends on American imperialism being stronger and more dominant, then that's a price too high. Here's the question I say to the Taiwanese uh, left, who are essentially nationalists. You want self-determination. What about self-determination for the people of Okinawa? Okinawa is a Japanese island. It has 32, 32 American military bases on it, including the largest marine base in the world, which is currently being expanded. What about, and the Taiwanese have fought American military occupation for decades. What about self-determination for the people of Okinawa? What about self-determination for the people of Palau, another American military base in the Pacific, the Federated States of Micronesia, and so on? There is no progress in saying we prefer this imperial brutal bunch of thugs against that bunch of imperial brutal thugs. There is, no, there is no progress in taking sides in a war between imperial rivals. We have to oppose them both and we have to fight our imperialism here. And of course Australia has aligned with American imperialism as we know and, and advocates for it uh, and so on. David. I think was talked a great deal and I think really, really well on um, the issue of forward defence. So forward defence, as someone who is a part of the Vietnam generation, we're very familiar with forward defence. Forward defence is the idea that Australian state has to be defended to the north, outside just Australia. In other words, you don't defend, defend Australia by actually defending the continent. You defend Australia by interfering in some other country, Malaya in the 60s, uh, opposing uh, East Timorese, self-determination in the 70s, Vietnam in the 60s and 70s. Self-determination involves you know, being part of imperial uh, projects of domination as far away from the shore as possible. That was the policy in the 60s, which, which the left, the anti-Vietnam generation, fought and fought and even, for a brief time, won the Labor Party too. Um, and AUKUS is absolutely part of this idea of, of, of forward defence. So I want to just jump here to say why does Australia, why is the Australian government so fixated on forward defence? I think it reflects the material conditions of Australian capitalism. So what happened in Australia, Australia, as we all know, is, is a continent, the only continent that's a country, right? The, what is it, seven million square kilometres. The ruling class that took control of Australia, the continent, you know, fought the Aboriginal people, massacred, genocide, all of that. That ruling class, that economy was very small and still is relatively small. Like there's, it's a very large area controlled by a very small ruling, a very, you know, small, if you like, state, state machine. Um, the, the area north of the tropics, north of uh, Rockhampton, the area of Australia north of Rockhampton is would, if it was an independent country, would be, the, I think, the seventh largest country or eighth largest country in the world, slightly smaller than India. Right? There's a vast, vast territory to the north. The ruling class has always felt anxious about its ability to control that territory. For a whole period of time, they were anxious about their ability to control it in the face of Aboriginal resistance. Today, you, know, you have this kind of fear of the north is baked into Australian ruling class politics, and that's where it comes from attempting to rule a, people talk about a colonial settler state. I say this is about ruling a relatively unsettled colonial settler state, right? A settler state where a huge proportion of the territory uh, is very, very lightly populated uh, and, and has minimal modern industry in the sense that, that we know it. 
And that dynamic is the one that has led to, a really, really from the 1870s, 1880s onwards, the ruling class wanting the imperial power in the region, the imperial power dominating um, islands and so on. I, I just, I, I, some years ago I wrote an article on Australian attitudes to Japan which was published in a magazine we put out called Socialist Review and it's available online and I think it might be uh, interesting here. When, when, one of the reasons Australia participated so vigorously in the First World War like a huge proportion of the population went into the military, 60,000 people died, soldiers died out of a very small population, was the determination of the Labor government, the determination of the Labor government, at the end of the war, Australia would control the islands to the north. They, they talked about the islands to the north being this, this chain of islands which encircles Australia. Whoever controls Papua New Guinea controls Australia. Whoever controls those islands controls Australia. And Hughes, the Labor Prime Minister, later the Nationalist Prime Minister, his slogan was, hands off the Pacific. Which didn't mean Australian hands off the Pacific, it meant Australian hands on, everyone, else, everyone else's hands off. What happens at the end of the First World War is that Australia goes to the peace conference and fights for a, 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 a this is a conference which carved up the colonial world into a series of mandates. Australia, along with South Africa, fought for a special mandate called the C-Class Mandate, which had incredibly uh, huge conditions, uh, sorry, very few conditions rather, on what the colonial power could do. Um, Australia got a C-Class Mandate over all the territories it seized from Germany. So it took German territory of, of what was called then called New Guinea, which is the northern half of what we now call Papua New Guinea, Nauru, Bougainville, German, uh, German New, what was called the German New Hebrides, okay? The first law Australia introduced uh, into covering Papua New Guinea was the White Australia legislation. Papua New Guinea, White Australia legislation. Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Right? Slightly? Just slightly ridiculous? <laughs> this was actually legislation to control immigration into Papua New Guinea, i.e. no Japanese. That's what it was for. That, that's, that's Australian forward defence. It's been there for over a century um, and it, it, it comes from, as I said, that that uh, the anxiety and the challenges of ruling a, la a, a continent with a relatively small economy uh, and population. Um, AUKUS absolutely fits into this because AUKUS, I think we're right to see AUKUS and the nuclear submarines as an attempt to wage uh, war uh, to, when, if necessary, on the Chinese Navy in the South China Sea. I think it's absolutely right. That is, the, that is one of the principal objectives. Another principal objective, actually, is to assert Australian military power in the region. In the region, not just against China, but to just say to the Indonesians, you know, we've got American nuclear submarines. What have you got? To say to Singapore, you know, Singapore's an, an island, a, a port country, a country which is a port and a city. We've got nuclear submarines, right? If there's any trouble, you know, we, we, we can defend you. Of course, that assumes that you're doing what we want you to do, right? Singapore absolutely hates AUKUS. The ruling class in Singapore, right? A vicious, brutal dictatorship, essentially, right? Very nasty, hate AUKUS. The region really hates AUKUS. What they hate also is the arms race that this uh, rivalry with China uh, is unleashing. 
I think the other, other element to Australia's forward defence strategy is the fact that the Australian capitalism has always been profoundly integrated into global capitalism, which again is why the whole idea of a self-reliant uh, you know, economy, making everything we consume here, all that stuff, is complete nonsense. From the very beginning, you know, Australian wool industry took over global wool markets, right? Destroyed the German wool industry. Australian coal industry destroyed the British coal industry. Australian mining is, you know, Australia's the great mining exporter of the world. So Australia is globally totally reliant, the Australian capitalism, totally reliant on export markets globally. Equally, it's always been totally reliant, or very largely reliant, on the import of foreign capital and foreign technology to build manufacturing, you know, more sophisticated production systems in mining and agriculture and so on. Totally integrated into global capitalism. It needs, it's always wanted to have the weapons and the presence to be able to have a more, a stronger seat at the table about what happens globally. Again, AUKUS is part of that. And that's, when you, when you look at those things, I think it becomes really clear why the demand by many on the left um, for conventional submarines, not nuclear submarines, is so profoundly misguided and actually reactionary. I mean, I, I, one of the more horrifying experiences I've had in the last uh, year is to go to uh, some meetings of the Students Against Office at Melbourne Uni. One of those meetings was given a presentation by Medical Association for the Prevention of War. Now, you know, you think doctors against war. What could be better, right? So this representative medical association for prevention of war starts out by describing, describing all the weapons the Australian military should have, the submarines Australia should have. It wasn't, it wasn't a speech against war. It was a speech for a conventionally armed navy, you know, a self-reliant military. It's like, you think Australian capitalism with you know, sophisticated weaponry, look at what it's achieved, what, what it's achieved for the region uh, in the past, not to mention, not to mention locally. Okay, so that's, that's the problem. So I just want to uh, finally deal with the issue of the resistance and the issue of some of the politics we need. I've got, what, three minutes, two minutes? Two minutes. Two minutes, okay, <laughs> this will be quick. One of the great, I, I, the media, and the ruling class in Australia do not understand China. They are beyond stupid and ignorant when it comes to China. China is a dictatorship, but it is a dictatorship that has a great deal of debate, contestation and so on within, within, uh, within the society. Um, the, the, where was I going with that? Sorry. <laughs> there, is, there is a lot of resistance to the regime in China. Um, we saw, we've seen, I just want to sum up a few of the key incidents we've had. The, um, the, the anti-lockdown protests, it, it, the anti-lockdown mood in Shanghai, when lock, Shanghai was locked down for two months, unbelievable levels of anger at the regime, not just at the lockdown, at the regime. The anti-lockdown protests. There was a bank crashes in the major city of Zhengzhou where there were banks crashed. People lost their savings. They protested outside the banks. The government blocked, you know, uh, put, put red cards up on their COVID app, which meant they couldn't travel anywhere. They couldn't, get on a, they couldn't get on a train, public transport, go to a supermarket because they were treated as COVID danger, right? Because they protested over losing their savings in these banks. That just inflamed anger throughout the country. 
There was the massive walkout by workers at the Apple factory in Zhengzhou, also in Zhengzhou. That factory has a maximum up to 300,000 workers. That's how big it is. And workers just stormed out because of the conditions of work under the COVID regime. We know about the COVID, anti-COVID lockdown protests. Over 100 universities had protests. At the moment, retirees in, in China are protesting because their medical benefits are being cut. Right? Why are their medical benefits being cut? Because the cities in China are suffering from the collapse of real estate speculation. They used to sell land uh, as a way of getting their revenue. They're not getting revenue from that and because of the amount of money spent on COVID. There's all this resistance going on in China. I think it's at a new level in the sense that I think that there's more of an anti-regime, anti-CCP mood, not simply just fighting over individual issues. People can talk about the attitudes to AUKUS in Australia, but I would, one thing I think is clear that the, when the government announced that AUKUS was going to cost $368 billion, but we couldn't afford to fix the health system, we couldn't afford social housing, we can't afford to do anything that deals with Aboriginal people to their benefit, we can afford police. Um, when you go through all the issues, there's the you know, wages, uh, pressure, can't have wage rises. I think that galvanised unions and many, many ordinary people to look at AUKUS in a whole new light and give it, gives us an opportunity uh, to, campaign, to campaign against it. So just finally, I just want to say something about the, 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 uh, the campaign. David, I think, made some really, really, you know, appropriate comments there. We're working with left nationalists. The left nationalists, I think, are completely wrong and I think their ideas potentially in the future will be very, very unhelpful in terms of building a campaign. Actually, I think the biggest problem with the left nationalists, many of whom come from a Maoist background, is just their, their straight-out conservatism. Their unwillingness, for instance, their unwillingness to meet in person in Melbourne, like at meetings. It's all on Zoom, still. Um, but but I think the, the key thing we need to do is to understand that these are the people we have to work with. We work with them while arguing about the politics of what AUKUS means, forward defence, conventional defence, all those issues, how you fight. We argue about all that. We work with them. We don't basically treat them as lepers because, after all, they're, they're, they've got a, they're still a more significant force than, than, than we are. One of the issues we have to take up is the question of defence and defence spending. If you're complaining about AUKUS costing $368 billion, why are you arguing for conventional submarines, which would merely cost $90 billion? Um, you know, I, I, and not just that, it's like it's the, you completely give ground to the militarists. We do not want any war between imperial powers. We don't want Australia involved in any war aimed at curtailing China. Responsibility for destroying Chinese state capitalism and the Chinese regime is the Chinese people's. We support them in that. We support every legitimate progressive movement in China to fight the regime. American imperialism is not a legitimate alternative to the CCP. It's a greater brutality. So I think we've got a lot to argue about, a lot to build. And frankly, we all know, as, as I think it was Lenin put it, war, war is the midwife of revolution, right? The, the horrors of war, we don't want them, but we're gonna get them. We're gonna get even just the horrors of militarism they give us a chance to show the real face of capitalism and show the urgent need for an alternative.